He was the head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was the head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine, because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine. But he was coming to talk to me. And he said, I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls. At that moment, I knew. I knew the way you know about a good melon. I bet you he was a hot date, huh? <laughs> well, everybody, good to see you today. Snowmageddon has passed, and uh, we're all together, safe and warm. Thank the Lord for that. We're in this series. It's the uh, third message, and uh, we're talking about the meaning of intimacy. And one of the premises is that the culture, the world around us, talks about sex all the time in music, in movies, on the internet, and conversation, billboards, everywhere you turn around, that's the hot topic. But we have a habit as the church and as Christians not saying anything about it, and that is to the detriment of our children, our grandkids, to our marriages, to our friends, and to the culture. So we're looking at what God has to say, and we're exploring this book, the strange book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. So if you want to turn open there with me today, we know so far that Solomon has swept the Shulamite woman off her feet, taken her to Jerusalem. They've begun dating or courting, whatever word you want to use. Last weekend, we talked about how uh, we can recognize the qualities that a godly woman looks for in a godly man and the qualities a godly man looks for in a godly woman. But we're in a strange part of the relationship right now where they're not married yet, but they're getting pretty intense in the relationship and having a pretty hard time denying their desires. So with that said, let's look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. She says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Come down to verse 8. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Then all the way down to verse 14, he says, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places of the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Now, what I don't have time to go into is the Hebrew that's being used here is very suggestive and is very, very powerful. These are imaginative words. These are fantastic kinds of words. They are at a point where, like I said, their walls are beginning to crumble. They, they want to consummate. They, they want to come together physically. In chapter 3, she has what psychologists call a fear fulfillment dream. And a fear fulfillment dream is something that probably all of us have had at some point where you planned an activity or an event, like maybe it was your marriage, if you're married, or maybe it was a trip you were going to take. You saved money, you made all your plans, you were ready to go, and the closer you came to it, the more you got anxious about it. You started worrying about all the things that could go wrong, and then you had a dream one night, 
and all those things went wrong. And when you woke up, you were in a sweat and in a panic because it was so vivid and real to you. And you were thankful afterwards to realize, oh my goodness, it was just a dream. Glad it didn't really happen. That's what happens to her in chapter three, so listen. All night long on my bed, verse one, I looked, for, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will, get, I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. In other words, they, they want to be together. And it's hard sometimes to wait. In our culture today, it's not just an issue of why wait, it's why even get married? Why not just live together? I mean, what does this piece of paper mean anyway? And those are two questions from this passage I want to tackle. Why wait, sexually speaking, till you're married? And when I say married, by the way, I don't mean the social institution of marriage. I'm talking about marriage as God defines it between a husband and a wife. I'm talking about marriage as the sacrament that God has given. It's not something mankind invented. It's something God created. Why wait? And, and why, why do you have to be married in the first place? And I know that as soon as I say that, I know that some of you watching online and here are going to be challenged by that. You might be challenged by it because you're in a situation where you're not waiting. You're sexually active. And I want you to listen, not what I have to say to you, but what does God's word have to say? Or maybe you're in a situation where you've chosen to live together rather than to get married. I don't want you to tune me out. I want you to listen to me. We all know people in that situation, a lot of young people in that situation, a lot of older adults in that situation. Even in our, even in our own family, we're wrestling with that, with extended family and so forth, and what is right and what is wrong. So, so we all feel it to some degree or another, okay? But the question is, what does God have to say about it? Because we got to listen to somebody. And I'd rather listen to what God has to say than my feelings or somebody's opinion. So why don't you hang in there with me as we kind of work through this together. And I want to start by giving a little bit of a history. A history behind the whole concept of going out and being together. It all starts with the ancient times. You know, in the ancient times, uh, marriages were arranged, which I think is a terrific idea. How many of you parents like that idea, arranging the marriage? Okay. How many of you students, young adults, like that idea? Okay, anyway, I think it's a great idea. And it would happen sometimes even before you were born or right after you were born. This little boy will marry that little girl. That little girl will marry this little boy. Why was that? Well, for a couple of reasons. You wanted to always connect yourself to a family that would help you out economically, that would give you some influence. So you're always kind of bartering and dealing to marry into the right family. And like I said, it was a lot about economics. The saying in that kind of a culture, which exists in some places in the world still today, is you get married and then you learn to fall in love. You move on a little bit further into the evolving of all of this and you get to what's called courtship. Tommy Nelson writing about this in his commentary on Song of Solomon talks about the history of courtship. He says it gets the name courtship from 
the Elizabethan period when knights and lords would go to the courts and there they would be around a beautiful, sophisticated woman and they would pay attention to them. They would give them gifts. They would go to balls and dances and dinners with them. They would woo them until finally one day they would ask the father in the midst of the court, in other words, in the midst of all the other nobles, may I have the hand of your daughter? And if the noble and the knight proved themselves to be worthy and gentlemen, they were given the hand of the daughter. Well, that, that kind of made its way into everyday life. And so for a long period of time, even in this country, men and women would court each other. And the way it would work is oftentimes at the initiation of the woman, she would say, you can court me if you want by coming to my house. And courtship would happen on the front porch or in the parlor. And there, the family of the daughter, of the, of the girl, would have a chance to get to know the man and assess his character and whether or not they really wanted to hand their daughter over to him. And he would have a chance to kind of assess her and the family and whether or not he really wanted to marry into this family. And then finally would come the day when he would pop the question, may I marry, sir, may I marry your daughter? How many of you, by the way, how many of you men asked your father-in-law if you could marry the girl you're married to if you're married? All right, good. How many of you, that went really well for you? I'm just kidding, all right? Okay. <laughs> It's intimidating. I had to do it. And my, my, uh, my brother-in-law, who obviously married my wife's older sister, uh, prepared me for it. He said, yeah, he said, I asked on the family farm. We had to go for this long walk. It was really, you know, really intense. And I'm like, I'm, by the way, you know, I'm like 19 or 18. Or How old was I when I asked you to marry you? 19? 18. We got married at 19. Whew. All right. Anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm helping him build a deck on his house, right? And I ask him the question. I say, um, <clears throat> Mr. Thone, I would like to marry your daughter, Marcia. And here was his response. I suppose. <laughs> and I'm like, really? That's it? Yes, it's so easy. Anyway, moving along, all right? That was, that was bonus. No other service heard that. Aren't you happy? Um, Things that come into my little mind. Um, so anyway, uh, then, you know, then, then you move on with life, okay? Well, that's evolved now uh, into dating. And in 1914, is the first time we hear about dating in literature in, in America. And dating is no longer the idea of going in, all right, and, and to the front porch of the parlor, but it's the idea of taking out, of taking out. And it's not... It moves away from character assessment to family approval and deepening friendship to it's all about spending money, being seen, and having fun. And of course, the idea of dating is you're trying to figure out, do I want to spend more and more time with this person? And dating then comes with all its own complications and issues. And so in the 21st century, in order to overcome some of those complications and issues, there is a new term you've probably heard, and that is hooking up. So I read this really long, laborious uh, uh, article by a guy named Benoit uh, Lewis. And uh, he writes in the New York Times magazine about what hooking up is, is really all about. And in that article, and this is back years ago because it was at the very beginning of hooking up, he says hooking up describes everything from making out to you know, full-on um, sexual intimacy between two people. And he says it's popular among young adults, collegians, high schoolers especially, and even to older junior hires. And the idea of hooking up is 
we, we can have this rendezvous, all right? We can, have this, we can have this physical relationship, however far it goes, with no obligation and no conditions. It may just be one time hooking up. We may never see each other again. We may never even talk to each other again. Or maybe there'll be a little bit of a spark there, and we'll decide to hook up more often, and maybe eventually, as you know, life goes on, we'll decide that we're going to live together. So here's the question I want to ask. How have we spiraled down in human relationships, romantically speaking, to that point? Where, where now it's just all about my drive and my desire and finding somebody who's willing to do it with me, and we do it, and we're not obligated, and maybe it's somebody else next week or another person the following week. How have we gotten there? Some suggest it's because of our view of marriage, that our view of marriage has drastically changed, that we have the wrong perspective or we have the wrong view of marriage. So what, what's that view of marriage? What's going on? Well, uh, Chris Rock, the comedian, uh, makes a question slash statement. He says, would you rather be single and lonely or married and bored? Do you rather be single and lonely or married and bored? Which kind of highlights where we're at as a culture. You know, do I just, do I just live bottled up single and lonely or am I, do I get married to this one person and bored the rest of my life? Well, the alternative is to hook up and if I want something more long-lasting, then is to cohabitate, live together. So 50% of the people who get married these days, according to research by Tim Keller and his team as he put together his book, The Meaning of Marriage, about 50% of people will live together first before they get married. Interestingly enough, 25% of young women ages 26 to 39 will live with at least one person before they get married. And, and the later they get into their 30s, 60% of women will have lived with several partners before they get married. So what's, what's happening here? Let's dig into this. What's, what's going on here? How many of you have ever heard of the term fake news? Have you ever heard of that? There's some real fake news about marriage. That's what's going on. You probably have heard the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That's fake news. Here's what researchers do know, and that is that 45% of marriages will end in divorce when one of these three things are present. A person gets married before they're 18. There's a pregnancy before the marriage. Or they're high school dropouts. One or all three of those contributes to the fact that, yes, 45%, maybe close to 50, will get divorced. But 60%, listen carefully, 60% of people who are married say they are very happily married. Did you know that? 60%. I thought I'd ask how many of you are in that category, but I didn't want to cause any difficulties in relationships. That's another series, so we'll leave that alone, all right? But listen now, listen. Research also shows that two-thirds of those who would say, I'm unhappy in my marriage right now, if they'll stick it out for five years, that they'll work at it, they'll get help, will be happy within five years. So marriage, marriage is in great shape, but the enemy is spreading a lie about it. The enemy is spreading a lie about it. So the question becomes, when did this attack on marriage, I mean, I think it began from the garden on when man rebelled against God, but, but when, when did that really, that onslaught against marriage really begin? And if you want to blame a movement, Tim Keller says, you can blame the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century Enlightenment. In fact, here's what he writes. Listen to what he says. During the Enlightenment, things began to shift. 
the meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Do you see trouble already? If the meaning of life is to choose that which will fulfill me personally, make me the happiest, we're going to have problems. We're going to have problems. He goes on, he says, instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. That's what it amounts to. What and how will this benefit me? And then an article entitled The Meanings of Marriage, written by John Witt Jr. Both these are long articles, by the way, and I can testify to that. He's a legal scholar at Emory University, writing on, you know, Earlier, what marriage was says this. Earlier, the ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Do you see how sex-driven this is? It's all about sex. It's all about my desires being met. That's what's driving all of this. In another study by the University of Virginia called the National Marriage Project, The State of Our Unions, Marriage in America, researchers Popano and Whitehead conclude that both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They are looking for a marriage partner who will, quote, fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. It's called these days, listen to this, it's called these days the me marriage. The me marriage. Does that sound like trouble? I mean, even without calling it the me marriage, isn't that the struggle you have if you're married? Isn't that the struggle you usually have in your marriage? Is selfishness? Somebody wanting it to be all about them? It's all about me? I mean, we all struggle with that. But to boldly come there and just say, listen, I want to marry you. And I just want you to know it's going to be all about me. Our whole married life long, it's going to be about me. You want to marry me? <laughs> you get that? I mean, who wants to marry somebody like that, right? It's all about me. That's where the culture has landed. Interestingly enough, in the same research project, Popino and Whitehead also noted, now listen carefully, please, men and women, listen carefully, young and old alike. When we see what's going on in the Me Too movement and all the energy around that, why don't you listen carefully to this, especially you guys, because this is research. They interviewed these men and enough sampling to get a pretty good response, generally speaking. Listen to what they say. Popano Whitehead also noted that among males was a demand that a woman should never curtail their freedom at all. Now, those men were saying, we're willing to get married. We don't, have to, we don't always have to live with a woman. We're willing to find a marriage partner, but we want to marry somebody who does not curtail our freedoms in any way. Well, that's trouble, isn't it? That's big, big trouble. They go on and they say the re researchers thus concluded cohabitation gives men the regular access to the domestic and sexual administration of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. Keep your options open. That should infuriate you, ladies. But that's the mindset. And that's the mindset of sinful men. We'll talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. But it's pervasive. It's pervasive in our culture. 
Young women are being influenced by that. In the same article that Lewis wrote, Benoit Lewis wrote on, on um, hooking up, a senior girl, senior high student girl, she was in her senior year, uh, said this. She said, dating causes pain. It's easier not to get attached. And I realized that if it's okay for guys to play the field and have sex with all kinds of girls, I should be able to also. So why marry? Why wait? Why not just hook up? And if you find somebody, why not just live together? I'm going to give you some answers to that. Why wait? Why get married? Here it is. You ready? Because God said so. I'm not going to get up here and tell you a psychological advantage. Uh, you're at a psychological advantage if you get married, that sex is better if you do it within a marriage relationship. And try to, you know, try to coax us into saying, you know, look at all the benefits to being married, and that's why you should be married, and look at all the benefits to sex and marriage, because, because that's why you should wait. I'm telling you, we should wait, and we should be married, because God said so. And he's the creator, and if God said it, then that's the way it is, regardless of how I feel or my desires, regardless of whether I intellectually agree with it or not. At some point, I've got to submit and say, okay. He's the creator. He gets to call the rules. He gets to make the rules. And I have to be obedient to him. Listen, here's a passage of scripture. There are many. I'm going to give you this one and one more. If you want some more biblical proof to go with this, you can write it down, look it up, share it with others, discuss it as a family. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Simple passage of scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The writer says, marriage should be honored by all, single and married alike. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Well, how do you keep the marriage bed pure? He says, for God will judge the adulterer. So that's one way you keep it pure. If you're married, don't have sex with somebody else. That's called adultery. Adultery sin. It's evil. He said, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually pornea, all the sexually immoral. And, and pornea, the Greek word that's used there, talks about any kind of sex outside of the marriage bed. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, don't even let there be a hint of sexual immorality in your midst. Not even a hint of it in your midst. So God's word is really clear about it. Wait and wait until marriage and obey me and trust me in this manner. See, here's the problem. We have confused the meaning of lust and the meaning of love in our culture. We call lust love. And a lot of what we call love is nothing more than lust. Lust means I'm in a relationship with you and I want something from you. I, I want, in this case, sexually speaking, I want your body for my gratification. I want it to meet my drive, my instincts, my desires. That's lust. Lust is about me. Love is about you. Love is about you and, you, and you ladies, especially you young ladies, listen, when a guy tells you that he loves you and if you really love him, you'll give your body to him, he does not love you, he lusts you. He's not respecting you, he's wanting to use you. And I, the same could be true about a girl who's being aggressive. To love means to give away. To love means to give away. It means to lose something for the sake of another. It means to forsake your freedoms for their sake. It means to invest your precious time, your emotions, your resources, says Tim Keller, in order that, that the other person may be bettered for that. To, to marry somebody is to make a promise, is to make a covenant with them. 
Marriage is sacred to God because marriage is a picture that God gives us of his relationship to the Trinity. Three distinct personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one divine essence. God says to the man and the woman, and the two shall become what? One. Not just physiologically, but there's a mysterious aspect of that as well. And with God included in our spiritual relationship, it's even a deeper mystery. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, he says, I pray that they may be one with me and I with them, that we may be one together. That's why Paul says, don't go having sex with all these different people. Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? He lives in you. And when you prostitute yourself, you're prostituting God in that relationship. And God says he wants it to be in this one sacred relationship. God has this high view of marriage. And that's why he says, I want you to honor this view. I want you to obey me. I want you to trust me. I want you to believe that I know what I'm doing when I call you to live this way. So I thought we'd sketch it out theologically. And I know some of you got really nervous when you saw the board come out on, in a series called Intimacy. What on earth are you going to do? Well, we're going to draw with Dale. Here we go. You ready? All right. So I want you to write the name of our God there. And let's go to the very beginning. In the very beginning, God created a man. God put the man in the garden. God created the woman. You've seen this before. And put the woman in the garden. All right. And God put boundaries around them. And the boundaries God put around them was his word or the truth. And God said to them, I want you to live in the boundaries with me. So we have arrows both ways. And with each other. And if you do, you're going to experience honor. You'll honor me. I'll honor you. You'll honor each other. You'll experience selflessness. Now, Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and not ashamed. They didn't have a sense of self. So God didn't have to tell them you'll be selfless. They just experienced it, but for our sake, they would experience being selfless. And that would lead to experiencing security. And I could add many more things, but those are the three that I want to emphasize. Honor, selfless, security. If they'll live in this, in this relationship with each other and with God, in this covenant relationship. But the enemy comes along, Satan comes along and says, why are you honoring God? Why are you honoring each other? Be your own God. And Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve believe the lie, and they leave the garden. They leave the boundaries of God, and they end up out here, right? And when they end up out here, it appears, look how free they are. There's no boundaries around them, right? I'm free. But look what happens. They move from honor to what? To dishonor. They dishonor God. They dishonor each other. She, it's her fault. It's his fault. Entering into their veins, coursing through their veins, is this thing called selfishness. They become, they become selfish, filled with self. And it leads to huge insecurity in their lives. Now, that's our world today. Would you agree? We dishonor each other in our world today. Sexually, we dishonor each other in our world today. Men dishonor women. Women dishonor men. We dishonor God, sexually speaking. I mean, God's just kind of there. If it's even there, we don't really pay attention to him. We're so selfish. And, and what an insecure, what an unsafe, unpredictable world we live in today. But I want to talk to the guys for just a moment. Guys, I, mean, I sound like I'm trying to beat you up, but let, let's be accountable, okay? Men are stronger. Men are dominant. When man stepped away from God, sex, his sexual drive, literally took over his life. And as a result of that, and this is a hook, men have sexually been preying upon women ever since. Looking, as, looking at women as objects to please themselves. 
And women allow themselves so oftentimes, not always, women allow themselves to think that that's all they're worth. And that's why you got to teach your daughters, guys, that they're so valuable, that they are worth far more than their bodies. They're humans. They're created by God. They have value. They're special. These young women are all young Young adult students, our women and our young are sacred to God, are holy to God, are to be set apart to God. Those men's bodies, those girls' bodies are precious to God. Not to be used and not to be misused and not to be abused. But that's what we see happen in our culture today. It's all come to light, which in some ways is good. In some ways it's tragic that it's existed. It shouldn't exist in the church. We've got to have a higher standard for our guys, for men, and treat women with great respect. And women, you got to stop letting yourselves let the men influence you to make you think like men and act like men. That you have to be sexually wild in order to fit in and to be accepted. If women were to tell you honestly how they feel and their true secrets, if the girls could be legitimately honest, they would say, I don't want to act that way. I'm uncomfortable being that way, but I feel like it's the only way I can fit in. So God says, I'm going to give you a chance. He comes and he sends his son Jesus down the cross for our sins. He says, if you'll accept what I've done for you, if you'll follow me, guess what? I'm going to invite you back into the garden again. And I want to invite you back into that garden again. And in that garden, I want to invite you to experience what I always intended. Live in the boundaries of my word, my truth, and honor will return in your life, in your relationships. You will increasingly become unselfish. It's a battle still, but we can grow and become more and more unselfish through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and find great security. This is the picture of what it should be like for believers. And this is the picture of what, what it should be like for singles when they honor God in their singleness, whether it's a, for a short period of time or a long period of time or the whole life. And if they decide to get married, honoring God in marriage. We should be a picture to the world of something the world should envy and desire and want. Because it is so dishonoring, so selfish, and so insecure out there. But if the world looks at the church and we don't behave much better than the world, morally speaking, why would they listen to us or agree? We're taking our cues from the world, folks, when the world should be taking its cues from us. And one of the reasons why is we just don't want to talk about it. We just don't want to talk about it. The problem is the world talks about it, sings about it, demonstrates it all the time. They're waiting for us to speak up. Not in an angry way, not a condemning way, but to speak up and model this truth. Tommy Nelson, writing on this, says, if your whole life comes down to sex, if relationships all about sex, he says this. He says, sex outside of marriage always follows a law of diminishing returns. Why? The emphasis is on sex and sexual gratification by itself as consuming and escalating. It goes head-to-head, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, hand-to-body, body-to-body. Eventually, a sexually illicit relationship peaks and burns itself out just like a wildfire. And therefore, I'm then on to the next hookup, and the next hookup, and the next hookup. And if we're living together and cohabitating together, and you get boring, your body changes, circumstances change, I'm not obligated to you. I just say goodbye and go find somebody else and start a new adventure to appease my desires, to appease my feelings. That leads to a chaotic, devastated, lonely planet. And I'm telling you, I don't have to prove a whole lot to tell you that the way the world views sexuality today does not work. All you gotta do is look at what's going on in the world today. 
It's not because Judaism and Orthodox, you know, Orthodox Judaism and Christianity has been so repressive. It's because we've moved away from God. That's why it's happening. So it's, you know, it's, it's the choice. We all face that choice. In essence, what God is saying is, wait, keep it in marriage to honor me, first of all, and secondly, we're learning that it's important that I let truth triumph over my passions, right? God's word over my feelings. It's like the, the, the reins, you know, and the bit and the bridle over the horse's mouth. It's the word of God and the Holy Spirit has the reins. I want to live my life under the governance of God's word. I want to live my relationships under the governance of God's word. My feelings are to be submissive to God's word. And last but not least, there's one more thing that's important. God said it, truth over passions. And you come back to the story, how, do the, how does the king and the Shulamite, how do they deal with it? Because their, their passions are hot and heavy. Here's what they do. Look at verse 7. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse love before it's time. He says in verse 15, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. So before the grapes come, comes the, comes the little flower. The foxes go along. The flowers are sweet. They eat the, the, the buds. They, they snip them off. And now there's no grapes. Saying, stop those little foxes. We want our love, we want it to bloom the way God designed it to bloom. We want it to consummate after we say, I do for a life, for a lifetime. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, she says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse love or waken it before its right time, before the time that God has prescribed, before the desires can be fulfilled. So I honor God. I let truth triumph over my passions, and I get accountability. I get accountability. Parents keep their sons and their daughters accountable, not by just lecturing them and pointing the finger at them and saying, you need to wait, you can't do this till you're married, but walking them through it, talking them through it, being an open ear, understanding where they're coming from, knowing you were once there. Singles, keeping each other accountable. Married couples, just because you're married does not mean you don't face sexual temptation. As spouses, you keep each other emotionally, spiritually, and physically accountable as well. As the church, by coming to the truth of God, we keep each other accountable as well. You say, Pastor, this is really, this is a hard message for me because I've not been living in the boundaries. I've been sexually active. Well, then stop. Today you can stop. Today you can ask God to help. Today you can repent. Today you can receive his forgiveness, and today can be a brand new start for you. That's the beauty of God's grace and God's goodness. If you got into a place where you're addicted, then you need to let us know. Contact us uh, uh, here at the, the campus. Ask to speak to one of our pastors. And we can help you confidentially begin to overcome this battle, directing you to the right resources or to groups that deal with this specifically. You say, well, we, I've been living together. Me, you know, me and my gal or my guy, we've been living together. And I don't, I don't understand this. So do you realize that if I... If we stop living together, do you understand the economic hardship this is going to create? So money's more important to you than honoring God. That sounds like a me marriage. So, well, do you realize that if I go to him and say, hey, I don't want to live this way anymore, he's probably going to leave me? Then he doesn't love you. He really does not love you. You're just convenient for him or for her. If that person really loves you, really cares about you, it may be hard, it may be a struggle, 
But they'll honor that, and they'll want to honor that as well. And God gives you a brand new day start. But as I said when we began the series, you know, ultimately, you got you to wrestle with God over this. Because he's the one that laid it out this way. He's the one that asks us to live this way. We got a lot to think about, don't we? You know, I was telling somebody, of all the little pigtails catching me, I was telling somebody earlier today, I said, of all the messages I've done so far in the series, I said, um, this is the one where everybody's kind of like, right? It's like out there. You're, so, you're just being so out there, Pastor. Well, the culture's out there. Have you noticed that? You can hardly get through flipping through the channels anymore without being sexually assaulted in some way. And all the jokes and all the ads and all the billboards, I mean, it is out there for crying out loud. Shouldn't we raise up God's standard, God's truth, what he has to say? The question is, do we want to adjust to what he says? And I pray that you will. And if we can help you in that journey, let us know. Would you please? And we'll try our best to do that. Let's all stand together. Preacher's long-winded this morning. And uh, by the way, when you leave, uh, if you'd like to help us uh, change some people's lives in a really positive way, uh, on April 28th, we are four. We're going to go serve throughout our community in different ways. Um, you can go to the table out to these doors to my right. There's a We Are Four table or T-shirts there. Get signed up. Give a couple hours next Saturday and make a difference uh, in our community as we demonstrate God's love in practical ways. Lord, thank you so much for this, this group of folks who love you and whom you love incredibly. Lord, it's so hard to talk about these topics. They're personal, they're private, they're a point of vulnerability in our lives. But Lord, um, you created us sexual beings and you created us to operate sexually in the boundaries of your truth. Lord, I pray, help us to stay in those boundaries. And if we've left the boundaries, help us get back in through repentance, through receiving forgiveness living obediently. And I think, Lord, there's probably some parents here whose, whose kids have made bad choices. And not because the parents encourage them that way, Lord. It's painful. It's painful as parents to watch our kids make, make choices that are not the way we raised them or what we taught them. Lord, help, help us know how to have honest dialogue with our sons and our daughters to love them and yet, Lord, hold the truth. For their sake and your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest.